one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? I hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. And I hope all is well with you and yours, wherever you're listening today, right now, whenever that is, wherever you are in this very moment in time. We are in February now, of course, the shortest month, but also the least transfer windowy month of them all. We've been through what feels like a very, very, very long January, where a lot of stuff was going on, lots of things were going to happen, then those things didn't happen, then different things happened, then another thing was going to happen, that didn't happen, and another different thing happened, and there was a lot of toing and froing, I guess, in the in the transfer market. Ultimately, though, Arsenal brought in three players, Leandro Trossard, Jakob Kivior, and Jorginho. And this squad of players is the squad of players that we hope can get us over the line to our first Premier League title since 2004. So we're going to chat about the squad. We're going to chat about how well we're fixed to compete in the Premier League and to compete in the Europa League as well. That is a reality. How hard we go remains to be seen. And also, what other challenges are we going to face in the second half of this season as the games become more and more important and the points become more and more valuable? We'll talk about all that and we'll get some insight into what the Arsenal women did and didn't do in January as well with my guest. Delighted to welcome back to the show. It's Tim Stillman. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Let me start by asking you this. Now that the dust has settled on the January transfer window, do you have trophy envy given that Chelsea have apparently won the transfer window and with it comes that prestigious piece of silverware that all the clubs in the world are are trying to get hold of? Yeah, a bit. I, I think Tottenham won it in the summer. So um, <laughs> I wish all of the fortune that has befallen them ever since uh, onto Chelsea as well. Um, included, we, we, do we have to play Chelsea once? I think, yeah, we'll beat them again. It's all good. But, okay. But but yeah, uh, but I mean, obviously, and they're, they're really, really smart and everything. They're doing disrupting the market by like sending the wrong paperwork to PSG and all of that. Just genius stuff, you know, really disrupting things, man. So yeah, good for them. Well, I mean, I think there might be a discussion to be had, though, you know, about the impact that this one club has had on the transfer market in the last 20, 25 years of, of football. Has any club had such an impact on prices of players, wages, even expectations of fans to an extent, because there's a measure of keeping up with, with the Joneses in a like. And, you know, I, I look at what Chelsea are doing. Uh, they're spending a lot of money. They've spent £600 million in the last eight months. Apparently, that's more than Brentford have ever spent, maybe twice as much. I mean, there are all these comparisons. Like, they spent more in the last three weeks than La Liga has in 4,000 years, whatever it is. I mean, you know, I mean, they're doing ridiculous things. But they're doing ridiculous things in, I don't know if you would call it a strategic way, but it feels like they're doing it in such a way that they're going to be the last ones who are allowed to do it. You know, mm. these eight and a half year deals are the, the giving to players and uh, they've, you know, people have said, no, you can't do that. In the summer, nobody's going to be allowed to do this anymore. And Chelsea are like, well, fine, we don't give a fuck because we, we've done it now. And, and I'm not saying that's what everyone should be able to do, but there is something about the way that they have operated with sort of with gay abandon, if you like, that has um, that is going to have you know repercussions for all the other teams in in the Premier League and beyond. 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's very like Elon Musk and Twitter, isn't it? It's like, ah, oh, this dude's rich. He must be really smart. And actually, um, mm. I don't know, maybe it's just my kind of bias. Maybe maybe he is playing 4D chess and he's a lot smarter than me and et cetera, et cetera. But I, I just think Chelsea look dumb, I have to say. Um, that, you know, that they're not the f first of all the ffp rules currently they do say something about five year contracts but i imagine what chelsea have stumbled upon is that the the wording is quite loose in a legal sense um i th i believe the the regulations do already say that but they're not the first i don't think i think it's very unlikely that they're the first people who've thought of this i'm pretty sure that most other clubs have thought of it and thought no that's a stupid idea um, and if you look at like the, just look at all the players Chelsea have bought in the last five years. If they were all tied to eight-year contracts, they'd, they'd be they'd be fucked. They really would because most of their like most of their signings have not worked for a long time now mm. because they've had this like let's just keep throwing shit at the wall until some sticks. Let's buy players because specifically we want to take them away from our competitors and stuff like that. In the early Abramovich era, that stuff worked because no one else was really doing it. But then like Man City came along and they have money and unfortunately brains. And, that, and, like, and then Liverpool came along. They don't have a, as much money, but they had a lot of brains. Like, and it doesn't. And so, like, what have Chelsea been doing in the league? Like, this is going to be six years this year since they won the league. You know, like throwing a lot of money at the wall has won them some cups. Unfortunately, it's won them a couple of Champions Leagues as well. Mm. It's won them some cup competitions because of the level of talent they have. But if you look at the league, Man City are in the top two every single year. Chelsea are up and down and up and down. They're n they've not challenged Liverpool or Man City for years. They haven't come close to winning the league. They've had like a 10th place finish in there. They finished outside the top four a couple of times. And like, I really don't see them on a corrective course here. <laughs> if anything, they've gone into turbo. So don't get me wrong. I'm not completely dismissing them as a threat, but I really don't think that this is a sensible way for them to run and they're attached to a hedge fund and those guys tend to be um, pretty brutal about things if they're not working. So, mm. But in, in terms of like overall impact, look, and it's not just Chelsea, Man City, PSG, probably with the Neymar transfer is, is the only comparable kind of multiplier effect. Look at what's happening to the clubs that are trying to keep pace with them. Look at Barcelona, look at Juventus. Um, and look, mm. I'm not crying any tears for those teams, um, but look at just look at the state they've got themselves into trying to keep up with some of this spending, um, and that's that's not all. That's some of that's just trying to keep up with the Premier League as well. well. Yes, there aren't Premier League teams who are in like dire straits like that, but it, it's absolutely changed the ecosystem. No, no doubt about it, and not necessarily in a good way. No, I mean not in a good way at all. I don't think you know. If possible, you would like for there to be some measure of equality across football and across um, the various leagues and everything else. But the Premier League is increasingly out on its own little island with its gilded moat and, you know, uh, the, the money is, is just unbelievable. You know, I saw some figures during the week about how much Premier League teams have spent versus all the other teams in, in Europe. And this is something we're aware of, obviously, as as... Arsenal fans because we've had issues where we're going well we want to we want to sell some players that we don't want uh, mm. but at the same time we'd like a lot of money for these players that we don't want who aren't very good that we want to sell and the difficulty of course is those clubs in Europe don't have don't have the money to give us as much as we would like so some of the deals that we've done you know maybe don't look very good in isolation maybe they're not good deals anyway but you know do you worry that this might distort the way that Premier League clubs do deals and do transfers in that we might see um, a lot of buying from European clubs, but when it comes to selling, you, you, you try and sell more domestically because that's what's going to get you a return on your money. Like the Caicedo thing, for example, is, is an amazing example. You know, a player that Brighton bought for £4 million Arsenal offered 65 plus 5, 70 million pounds. Huge profit. Huge profit. 
and Brighton did not want to sell, which is entirely their prerogative. But can you imagine a few years ago, a club like Brighton being offered that amount of profit on a player that they bought for that little money and not immediately snapping the hand off the buyer or the person that was was offering that much money. So it, it speaks to how much money there is in the Premier League, but also the way that transfers are going to go increasingly as, as clubs look to buy from each other, because this, this is where all the talent is going to gravitate to, yep. you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, what, what we're talking about here is a separate markets, like the Premier League has its own internal market now. Yeah. And if you want to sell players, like, you know, it, it's already happening, like people are pointing out the extent to which Chelsea and Arsenal are horse trading players, um, for example, like, you know, like, like the Galas Cole thing mm. felt utterly seismic at the time. It was like, wow, I can't believe that this is happening. And and now it's like mm. quite normal. Um, and you know, the, the, the prices that we're quoting each other as Premier League clubs, but like you say, that doesn't translate outside. But then even like you look at Man City, who kind of got rid of Joao Cancelo um, in January, and he hasn't gone to a Premier League competitor but he's gone to Bayern, which yeah. is like one of the only clubs outside England that has like Premier League style revenue. And, but that's a Champions League competitor right there. Like, so in, and, and, you know, the Champions League is going to expand as well. So those games are going to, are going to become more frequent. So essentially, there is no way of not selling to your competitors, basically. And that's, that's just what we're going to see more and more of. More and more clubs are going to have their resolve tested by Newcastle as well. Yeah. Like if this summer Newcastle put down a lot of money for Kieran Tierney, for just using that as an example, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but, you know, what what do you do as Arsenal? Like I'm sure you take it because it's good money, but at the same time, mm. you're giving them a really good player. At the, well, not giving them, but, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so, and, and then you look at, like I was thinking this about Balogun earlier, like, what sort of price can we quote for Balogun now? Like I have that, I have that written down here because <laughs> you know, just to sort of expand I on what you genuinely don't yeah. know. Like if Mudrick cost a hundred million pounds, what's Balogun? Well, like Which, the whole idea of like transfer value. It, it's all obviously it's always been subjective and, and everything, but it's just completely nuts. And like the answer with Balogun is well, there's a price if like. A French club, for example, wants to sign him. And there's a price if a Premier League club wants yeah. to sign him. That's like, that's the answer, basically. There's two different valuations. And so what you're getting is like bifurcate market markets yeah. emerging. I mean, w when you're talking about those sort of internal markets within the, within the Premier League, you know, the big clubs selling to each other has been pretty rare. Or if, yeah. if a player went from a big club to another big club, it tended to be... Like a Sylvestre kind of thing, you know. Um, that's why the Robin Van Persie thing, you know, hurt the way it did because you don't sell good players to yeah. other good clubs, right? But it reminded me, you know, a bit of when Serie A was the richest league in Europe. And you would see routinely players going from Milan to Juventus, to Inter Milan, to Sampdoria, to Roma, to Napoli, to Lazio, you know. And it, it, it wasn't a weird thing for those players or for those fans because that's the way that that market operated. And I think that's where we are now with mm. the Premier League. Who, who are the three clubs that Raheem Sterling's played for? Like, yeah, you know, Liverpool. There's an example. Yeah. That's very 1990s Serie A right there. <clears throat> mm -hmm. But I had written down this. I had written down here, um, Mudrik and Balogun in my notes here. Um, Flo Balogun has scored more goals for Rance this season than Mikhailo Mudrik scored for Shakhtar Donetsk in his entire career there. Um, and I know it's a sort of spurious comparison in a way, but these distortions in the market, they have an impact. Mm-hmm. They, they sort of all go, well, if he's worth this, then he's worth that. You know, and, and, and that's I, literally what Shakhtar said, right? Yeah. Anthony's worth 90 million. That, exactly. They literally <laughs> so said, if, if Anthony cost 80 or 90 million, why should we not sell Mudrik for 100 million? Okay, well, if that's the way you're doing I mean, uh, you know, 
uh, I don't know that Manchester United's stupidity should dictate the market to that extent, but it is what it is, right? So, and it never goes the other way, does it? No. We couldn't come back and say, well, we got Martinelli for three million, so maybe we'll meet you in the middle. Yeah, <laughs> why don't you like... try a bit of that, fuckers? Um, <laughs> but but it is a, an interesting thing to think about because Balogun obviously is doing so well in Liga. He's the top scorer there um, after his hat-trick this week. And he's scoring his goals in a top five European league. Um, Mudrik scored his goals in the Ukrainian uh, Premier League, right? I'm not saying that Balogun is better than Mudrik or he's going to be better than Mudrik, but you know, all of those cocktails go into player valuation. Nor, by the way, am I saying right now, I just want to make it clear that we should sell Flo Balogun because you know, it's a very good, he's making a very good case for himself to come back and stake a claim in this squad when next season... Um, you know, all going well. We should have Champions League football and that requires your squad to be deeper and better and, and to have more options in, in key positions, whereas at the moment we're, we're a bit light at centre-half. But like if somebody did come in with a big bid for him or any kind of bid for him, you know, Arsenal would be well within their rights to say, well, hang on a minute. He's finished this season with, I don't know, let's say he gets 20 goals this season in, in France. And he's only 21. And we've got a contract for another three or four years with him. Maybe we've got a year option on that as well. And this guy costs that. And he came from there. And and it sort of becomes a self-perpetuating thing, which might in some ways be a little bit of a benefit to us because we're at a point now where, where maybe the players that we're looking to sell are actually players that other teams want you're not sort of yep. desperately going does anybody want a free Kolasinac anybody <laughs> you're not that's not where you are it's like oh you'd like a left back well yeah we've got a good left back make us an offer yeah you know you, holding yeah exactly I'm, you I'm want sure it? most of the bottom half of the Premier League would be very happy to sign Rob Holding. Exactly. Nuno Tavares doing it out on loan. You know, he would have options across Europe based on his performances this season. Um, you know, the, the, uh, Albert Sambi Lukonga, if he plays good minutes for Crystal Palace, you know, the very least he's going to do at Premier League level anyway is, is retain the value, retain what we paid for him. And potentially, you know, if he does well at Palace... I think it would be an easy deal for Palace to do if they offered a bit more than we paid for him. We make a bit of profit. He goes that way. You know, so it's a fascinating thing to consider, even if it is at the very heart of it, objectively obscene <laughs> when it comes down to the amount of money that's that's being traded and being used to, to you know, basically buy human beings to play football. Yeah, and when we're getting to the stage where like sixty million pounds is being described as insulting and derisory yeah. and all yeah. of this, and it's just like we all have to make mental adjustments about football money because it's all derisory and insulting and more money than we'll ever see in our lifetimes, and most of us anyway will ever see in our lifetimes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But yeah, I, th I think when you're into the tens of millions, using language like that is is that's when you've got to take a bit of a step back, to be honest. And yeah. Say, it, is that the right word to use for this amount of money? Probably not. Yeah. Are you glad the transfer window is closed? Because there is a sort of, you know, look, I love a transfer as much as the next guy. I'm sure you love a transfer as much as the next guy. And we all love new players at our club, depending on who it is and where they come from and how old they are and all the rest of it. But we'll get into that in, in a moment, right? But for the most part, everybody loves a good transfer. But there there seems to be increasingly a sort of collective mania that surrounds yeah. the transfer window and in particular the last you know the, the last week or the final stages of the transfer window and and just to sort of finish my point it's like i'm not saying that the transfers aren't important or things that we shouldn't be invested in because if you get them wrong, it can be really damaging. As we know, if you get them right, it can be really good. As we know, you know, you can draw a very clear line between Arsenal's improved recruitment and Arsenal's position at the top of the table. So I'm not saying that transfers aren't important or, or any of that, but it does seem to just like when you have actual real life journalists saying, well, Chelsea have won the transfer window. It's like, well, no, come on, try and, Try and talk about this in a in a in a more informed, intelligent way. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think um, I haven't got it in front of me, but I, I uh, the, the mania is so bad. I didn't even retweet this tweet because I didn't want to, um, you know, flood the guy's mentions or or my own, um, to be honest. But I think it was from tweet good tweet good underscore Mac uh, who tweeted something like, "You can tell like how mad the transfer window and like the competitive element of it is." when like Edu out is trending because Arsenal didn't sign a certain player when they're five points clear at the top of the league, (laughs) largely off the back of a pretty decent recruitment strategy. And look, I'm not going to say like Edu's like above, you know, absolutely perfect or blah, blah, blah. But it's, but it's just like, it it does make people a little bit crazy to, and and look, none of this is like original um kind of commentary like i think a lot of people have been saying this for the last decade or so but like when you take a step back it's like i i don't even really like sharing my thoughts really on social media about transfers that much because Mm. people get so angry about it and so like it's like whoa it's a bit like um i mean because I, I used to be at every game, right? So I was never on Twitter during games. And I'm still not that much, but it's happened more in the last couple of years and mm. particularly during COVID and stuff like that. But you know, when like you look at your timeline during a game sometimes and mm. you're like, whoa, what's going on here? <laughs> it's like like the tra- the transfer window is like the 85th minute when Arsenal are holding a one goal. <laughs> but like... For a whole month, yeah, basically. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's what it's like, and it's 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 really interesting. And and there's like I think there's so much about how opinions feed other opinions and blah blah blah. Look, again, maybe I'm taking this a little bit off piece. Maybe not because he actually left in a transfer this week. But Sambi Lakonga, I I didn't go to the Man City Cup game. I watched it, and uh, I watched it with my wife. So I didn't look at Twitter during the game because we were just watching it and talking about it and like, whatnot. Like humans? Like humans, yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. And, like, it was weird because I, I wasn't following, like, you know, the the kind of commentary. And then I mm. looked afterwards at, at, like, poor Sambi Lakonga, and I was a bit like, I don't know if I should admit this, but I was like, I didn't even notice that, like, <laughs> it, like it did not occur to me that he had, like, a stinker or anything like I didn't think he played brilliantly or anything but I wasn't sitting there think I don't know maybe it's because I've already made my mind up and like my expectations were set etc etc but I did not watch that game thinking oh my god this guy's awful he's useless Mm. he's doing everything wrong I I guess I just thought what I thought anyway which is like this this game is probably like a little bit above him Mm -hmm. at the moment at his like level of development etc etc but like when you look online, it's like whack because it becomes like it, it snowballs. And I, and I think that's kind of the same with transfers as well. There is a big like competitive online element about it. And so you're seeing what all the other clubs are doing as mm. well and all of this. And, and again, talking about language, the conflation with like words like ambition and like getting it done and all of this. And it's, it's like, it's not quite that's like, obviously the teams that sign the best players win stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. like obviously that's true. But of course, like there's a whole microclimate where it's like, that doesn't mean that every transfer is a good one or that every, you know, like Mm. there's got to be something a little bit discerning about it. And look, the, the number one reason that Arsenal have got better it's transfers, right? It, like it just is. We bought good. We got rid of bad players, and we bought good players. Good players that fit what the coach wants to do. So, like, it's good coaching as well. It's good talent ID. It's good. This player is a good player, but in our system, he can be a great player. Sure, kind of thing. But, but of course, like we've got like the team is unrecognizable from two years ago, personnel wise. And that's a big part of why we've got better. So, of course, it's all important. And so, of course, like. I'd I'd have been pretty anxious if we hadn't bought a midfielder in. I would mm. be. I'd be like, this is a risk. Um, and obviously the club knew that, and I could see through the reporting that they were trying to address that. So I was like, fairly chill about it. But it was like, but if we'd come out without that, I'd I'd have not been that happy. If we'd have come out without a wide forward, I wouldn't have been that happy. So it's not to dismiss some of the anxiety around it or anything like that. But you're right, it becomes like a mania yeah. 
um at times and it's and yeah it it can it's a little bit like um that that meme of like the person walking into the kitchen on fire yeah <laughs> it can be a little bit like that sometimes yeah 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 um i mean when you see chelsea fans complaining about the club not doing enough when they've signed like 16 players in the last six months and, and quite a few players in January as well. You know, there is there is a limit. And um, yeah, look, we all know what's at stake this season. We all know what we've got to play for. And I think that fed into quite a bit of the anxiety from an Arsenal fan's perspective too. So let me ask you, you know, now that we are at the end of the window, how do you feel about the squad going into the second half of the season because you know there's there are elements that we'll talk about because I think there are you know on the pitch things or off the pitch things do you feel more confident with the squad we have that we could achieve what we want to achieve based on what we've done in January yeah yeah I I think what I would say is I feel better about the squad and I think that's like the minimum you can ask for coming out of a transfer window. And so I, I think what we've done, and, and I don't mean to dismiss it because I'm happy with it. I, I think we've done like the the minimum and I don't mean that in an effort to like the, the intention was obvious. The intention was spectacular. And I like that. I like that they're thinking that's what they're thinking of. I like like Moises Caicedo is a player I knew a little bit about when he was at uh, Independiente del Valle because um, at the time I was covering South American football. L- like, look, Brighton deserve a hell of a lot of credit for unearthing unknown talents. This guy was not an unknown talent. Everyone wanted this guy um, and because he was really good and it was really, really obvious. And it was actually a, a surprise that he went to Brighton because everyone just expected him to go to like Barcelona or Real Madrid or someone like that. It's obvious why he decided to go to Brighton and it was a very good choice to go to Brighton because he's played. Mm. And so, you know, but leaving that aside, like the the intention was spectacular and spectacular is hard to do in January um, unless you're Todd Bowley, um, (laughs) you know, behaving like a, like someone who's had a few too many brandies in on a Vegas table at 5am. But like, what we've done in the circumstance because so essentially like I've always had this thing about like, don't buy squad players, don't buy players who you just think, Oh, they could do a job. Like always stress test, like your squad player signing with if the main guy's out for six months, am I happy with this guy playing for six months? Cause that's what can happen mm. with your squad player. So none of this, like I can come on for five minutes at the end. He can play the odd Carabao cup game. Like, no, are you happy with this guy? in the team. That's the kind of stress test. So you don't buy squad players. You buy players who challenge to come into the team. If you look at what's happened to the team since last season, you'd have told me this time last year that Tommy Asu and Tierney would be like squad players for for us, which Mm -hmm. they are. Like, I wouldn't have believed you, but that's exactly right because we brought in really, really good players. Now they're the squad players. And so it's not like with all due respect, Cedric, Holding, Tavares, like they're not the squad players anymore. They're mm. going. It's Tierney, Tomiyasu, Smith Rowe, like Inketia. I'm I'm so much happier with the idea of Inketia as the backup striker than I was twelve months ago. You know, so we're building that second layer. And so what the, that's kind of what we've done um in January. We wanted to do the spectacular. So if you sign Mudrick maybe he takes Martinelli out the team eventually and then Martinelli becomes your squad player. Um, or like if you buy Caicedo, maybe this time next year, Jacques is the squad player. You know, it's, yeah. it's that kind of, you, you kind of, you bump people up and players either live with it or they don't. And that's how you improve your squad. But you can't always do that. In an, in an ideal world, that's what you do, but you can't always. There are some positions where you just can't. Like, who the hell do we buy for the right wing? Like, yeah, that that's so hard. That's such a hard thing to do. And, you know, you look at like what Tottenham have had with Harry Kane for years. Like, who the hell do you buy as your backup striker? No no one good wants to do that job. Vincent Janssen. In, indeed. You Soldado, know? like any number of bums and failures. But, and so, and, and so there are some, pl- and like backup goalkeepers, you can't really have a world-class backup goalkeeper. It doesn't work like that. So there are some positions where you can't, mm. but like someone like Trossard, 
really happy with that because like if you told me tomorrow that Martinelli's done his hamstring, like obviously I wouldn't be happy about that, but I'd think, okay, so Trossard plays for the next three weeks. I'm fine with that. That's okay. That doesn't like keep me up at night particularly. Yeah. And it, and it's the same really with Jorginho for party. Like if you told me Sambi Lokonga has to play number six for the next four months, that that keeps me up at night. <laughs> that that kind of that wakes me up at three o'clock in the morning. If you t- tell me Jorginho, like no, like that's fine. And I think the other thing as well with those signings is I'm slightly less like basically since about early November, I've just been like, as soon as the Europa League comes back, throw it in the bin. I don't care about it. Not interested whatsoever. <laughs> but actually, I'm feeling slightly less like that now. Because I feel like if we're sensible with the teams we pick, I'm happy with Trossard, Jorginho, Inquietia, assuming Gabriel Jesus is back, Smithrow, like Tierney, Tommy Asu. Like that that's not a weak team to me. No. That's fine. That's fine. It's not like sending out kids or guys you don't want anymore. So I, I think we've been smart. And I think we have to be honest about last January. I completely understood what we did last January, so I'm not I'm not sweating about it because I understood it at the time. But we also have to be mature enough to say it failed. Like the the decision to do nothing, maybe we were unlucky. We got some mm. injuries that we didn't want to get, but unfortunately it blew up in our faces. It just did because injuries did us in the end. The squad was too small, so it didn't work. And we have to be kind of honest about that. So what I'm happy about is that the club have said, we're not doing that again. We're not taking that risk that if Party or, or Zinchenko or someone breaks down in late March, that we're going into massive games with Cedric at right back and holding and patching up Tommy Asu and White and Gabriel when they're not fit. We're not sure. taking that chance again. So I'm, I'm happy with what we've done. And I think it, it respects the position that we're in as well. And we've bought guys who know the Premier League the temperature of games changes in April and May. We saw it last year, and some of us are old enough to remember Arsenal winning titles and going for title races just and about, those games in April. About. Yeah, even against shit teams, like yeah, different. They just are. And so, having guys like Jorginho and Trossard to help us manage those, I'm I'm happy with that. I'm not going to say ecstatic. But I'm happy. Yeah, I mean, I think they had to learn lessons from last week or last January. And even if you don't get your main target, you've got to still fill the position in a way that is is beneficial. And look, I think we've done the Jorginho discussion to death, and it's been talked about, it's been written about, uh, and everything else. But you know, I would. Um, it's sort of getting over that initial like, oh, not this again. To like, well, actually, you know, here's a guy with a fairly good CV. Maybe the legs aren't what they were, but he's a smart mm. player. And um, and it's different. I, I know people have got Chelsea trauma. We all have Yeah, that, of course. Like, yeah. The, this is different as well. First of all, I think Jorginho is like a better player, but also he's he's not coming in to be a starter. It's not like, and look, David Luiz wasn't bad for Arsenal, but it's not like he's going to start every week. Like it's a different, mm. it's a different thing yeah. altogether. This is, this is backup. So... Yeah, it's a different context. So, look, I, w- I was going to ask you about that. I was going to ask you about the second half of this season. And, um, you know, we had uh, – did a pod over on Patreon with with, with Paul um, talking about the Europa League with a question about it. Should Arsenal just tank the Europa League? And it's like – I can understand why people want to do that because, you know, Europa League was kind of like a safety net if we didn't get top four. Um, anything that isn't top four this season will be like horrendous, right? Um, but I think there is something to discussions that we've had before about players when you need them coming in, if not hot, slightly warmed up and not completely cold, where you're asking a guy who has sat on the bench for four or five months and has got a few minutes here or there to come in and do an important job in the team. So the the balancing act between Europe and the Premier League is going to be interesting because it's not like, you say, putting out a Cedric, putting out Tavares, putting out, you know, Carl Hine in goal or, you know, I'm not I'm being critical of him, but just sort of, you know, that completely pick a completely rubbish team to make sure you go out of competition. This is a a chance for 
Tommy Asu, for Tierney, for Kivior, who's a new signing, for Trossard, for Enkedia, for Fabio Vieira, for Emile Smith-Rowe, for Jorginho to play. And they probably know to an extent that this is going to be, you know, at least in the short term, their best chance of playing. So their motivation is high for this competition. So there are benefits to being in the Europa League when it comes to the Premier League, even if, you know, any nominal first team player who picks up any kind of a knock in a Europa League game is going to see the gates of hell open up, you know, as Arsenal Twitter goes completely mental about them being anywhere near the pit. Why were they even in the stadium? They should, you know, I mean, that's just a consequence of it. But but I do think there is something to that, that these are guys that we might need, let's say, gets down to the final three or four games of the season. Players get tired, players get fatigued, and that's when players get injured. And that's when you need to call on these players who are in inverted commas, your backups or your second choices or whatever you want. So if they've been involved to a larger extent than we saw, you know, last season, that can be positive. Yeah, definitely. And and it, it's almost like a higher level of what we were doing in the group stages anyway, and what mm. we have always done in the group stages. Um, but I, you know, I, I absolutely, and it will be of value to some of those players, particularly who are new to get used to teammates and things like mm-hmm. that. And, and like, you know, we'll be playing better opposition, obviously, but they're better players. Like, it's not, I mean, I say with all due respect, I mean, how many Dundalk fans are actually listening to this? But it's could not like Mould and Dundalk. Could be a few. <laughs> Careful, they're only up the road from me. They could come after me. <laughs> so, you know, we're not playing Mould or Dundalk or Zurich or, or, or teams like that, but this is mm. a, a better class of player as well. And, and look, there's a big part of me as well that kind of stops ticking this over in my brain too much because of like like look Arteta has prioritized we saw the team that played Brighton in the League Cup we saw the team that played City we saw the team we see the team that's mm. been playing in the Europa League group stages it's not like he's been putting the first 11 out every single week but he tends to keep them involved in those games that's more his approach is like you know you might not play the full game you might mm. get 30 minutes but you're in the squad you're on the bet you're not sitting at home and he's spoken about this particularly with regards to Saka where he said like I don't really want you know I don't want my players to think what am I doing in this game like where they kind of pick and choose and look if Arsenal go ultimately where they want to go this could be the Champions League next season. Um, you know, let's dream a little bit. We could be in the title race again. We could be in the Champions League quarterfinals. And then what do you do? You can't like mm. you can't play like you know backups and kids then. So you know you but you have to get comfortable with rotation. And and that's the thing. Like if we let's say this was the Champions League, for example, like Jorginho's experienced at that level. Um, I'd, I'd feel comfortable with trust. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, so it yeah. becomes more of a, not that we're playing like the B team, but that there's a more harmonious relationship between. Sure. So like I, I was talking about um, Tommy Asu, for example, as a squad player, Smith Rowe. I mean, I, I did that for brevity, but they're not really squad players. Like Tommy Asu's better than that. Smith Rowe's better than that. They've been, they have been and still are important players for us. So, like I, you know, like I said, just for the sake of brevity, I've called them squad players. But what they are is like, like if you're playing the Champions League final tomorrow, they probably don't start, but they'll play lots. They'll play lots of minutes and important minutes mm. as well. So, like that—that's what you want, really. You want like there to be more of a blurring of the line between your kind of first and second layer of the squad. That That's where we want to go ultimately. Yeah. And I, I think like with the Europa League, we can do that. And look, you know, I said it kind of jokingly about uh, dumping the Europa League, but you also, even leaving aside what Arteta, uh, how Arteta approaches it, you can't do that. And uh, I got I got in a lot of um, trouble for tweeting after the City game that I felt that this was like the perfect thing in that we're out, but like we competed yeah. um, and so there wasn't really a site like because with the FA Cup like FA Cup Europa League and League I was just like no I, I, we're not there yet mm. we're not there yet but particularly after this window I feel more comfortable with the idea of taking on two competitions than I did on January the 1st on January the 1st I was like nope I think we've got like 13 14 players really that I really really trust 
now we've got like 16, Eddie's form 17. Like, I feel like we're getting more towards that two players in every position. We're not quite there, but we're getting, we're getting much more towards it. So, I, you know, and obviously for like morale reasons and stuff like that, yeah. you can't just like dump out of competitions. It's, it's, it's just not that easy. No, that's so. not, that's not the way players' mindsets work uh, either. No. You know, they want to win, they want to play, they want to win, they want to play. And that's just the way it goes. I was going to ask what you think the biggest challenge in the second half of this season is going to be because 19 games, we're going game uh, game by game. We all know it, but we also all know that we are in with a very good shout. Uh, We're in an amazing position actually to go on and and compete for and hopefully win the title. Um, Your column on the site today cited a couple of examples you know in uh, in previous seasons where you would say that Arsenal had maybe better teams than this one certainly mm. more experienced teams than this one teams that had won things or certainly had players in them that had gone the distance in a, in a title race so it just strikes me that the the pressure element of this is going to ramp up week by week and there aren't too many players in this team that have gone the distance in a league campaign who understand what it takes. And on the one hand, that might be quite useful. You know, that sort of freedom of youth that these guys have where, you know, that sort of pressure, it doesn't really play on their minds. They're just, you know, they're still young. They're going to go out. They're going to play. They're going to enjoy themselves. They have a lot of trust in the manager, trust in each other. So there could be a sort of liberation aspect to that. Mikel Arteta has been there, not as a player, not as a manager, but as an assistant manager. He's gone the distance with Manchester City and will have seen it up close and personal. And City have, you know, been an amazing team with an amazing squad for reasons we all understand. And and they've got the ability to put together a group of players that, that can compete and can win titles, consistently win titles. How valuable do you think that experience that Mikel Arteta has in this very scenario is going to be for this team in the second half of this season because ordinarily he's just a young guy doing his first job, punching above his weight a little bit in terms of where we are in the league, uh, also in terms of who we're competing against and everything else. But he's got that in his pocket. He's got that mm-hmm. knowledge and he's lived it. So how how crucial do you think that could be um, as we approach this second half of the season. Yeah, it's not going to hurt, is it? Um, like you said, and, you know, I think by all accounts as well, like he was a pretty hands-on coach at, at Man City. Mm. He wasn't just putting cones out, um, you know, so, and, and there's, a, there's a reason he was, he was very, very highly rated in that role. So I, I think that absolutely helps. I think what you want really is, is like a healthy relationship between the two of that fearlessness, but, but sorry, of those, you know, guys who've maybe gone the distance. And again, as as much as it it feels a bit painful to say it, because who because because of who he's done it with. But Jorginho has. Did um, he? I don't know if he's won the Premier he, he's League. He's not won the just... league, um, but you know, he's he's won. Look, he's won the Champions League, won the Euros. He's played in those games. Mm. You know, he's played in those like absolutely white hot games, and and that that's. That's the thing, because what we've got at the moment is momentum. We've got like a load of momentum. And I was really interested in the stuff Pep Guardiola was saying a couple of weeks ago where he was talking about like the hunger that Arsenal have because they Mm. haven't won it in a long time. And they've got that kind of it like all of it just reminds me so much of early George Graham. Um, It really, really does like in terms of the manager who he's got rid of, who he's brought in. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that we're, you know, we were taking on Liverpool at that time, who were the man city of, of their time. Um, I really hope that we don't end. Well, I say don't end the season like that. It all turned out all right in the end, but I'd rather not like, yeah, don't need those fucking heart attacks. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Make it like easy Wimbledon for us. And Derby at home, <laughs> yeah. but but that's I should have included the, um you know that that um example in my piece. Yeah. I, I cited like April ninety eight. I remember being at Highbury. We played Derby. Derby were rubbish, absolute rubbish. We squeaked it one nil with a thirty yarder from Manu Petit. Two thousand and two, West Ham, Ipswich, Spurs, 
all won in the last five minutes. Wasn't there April. like um, in the 97, 98, didn't Chris Ray score like a winner He's against... There was Bolton and there was Wimbledon. Bolton and Wimbledon, um, you know. Both 1-0, you know, like that that kind of thing happens. It mm. just does in April and May. And we, we were on the wrong end of it last season. We weren't going for the league, but, you know, Newcastle in May, Spurs in May, that was different. That was It was just different than those games would have been in February or March. Yeah. There's just a different temperature. And so, like, obviously managing that, that that's the biggest challenge for me. But, yep. Yeah, Arteta's um, kind of experience absolutely counts for that because like really if you're Arsenal like because every game that comes up now because I'm thinking God Sean Dyche even though we have a really good record against Sean Dyche um, there's this oh God Sean Dyche first game in charge at Everton and I remember like they they beat Man United a couple of years ago and they had Duncan Ferguson as caretaker and obviously Duncan Ferguson but it was just like his first game I think they just got rid of Marco Silva and there was this real like you know and they won one nil and they were scrappy and they were dirty and they played four four two and hit it long and what and you know mm. all, all of that but like in my mind I just keep thinking like we've got a template for the way to play and if we stick to that template as we've done in nearly every single Premier League game this season I think with the exception of Leeds if we keep sticking to that template like we're good, we're golden, right? Mm. We'll be good. If we do that on Saturday, we'll win. And so there is a big part of me that just feels like we can lose it by not doing that anymore. Um, or, you know, like by losing like four big players. Um, or or, like or sort of being forced out of that by the approach of another team, as, as yeah. you know, we've seen in the past, you know, Bolton in 2003, for example. Y- yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's going to get like that. Like people are talking, you know, it's very, very quickly the, the switch has flipped from like, oh, Arsenal, the pretenders, they'll fall away. And now it's like, oh, no. Like I, I'm listening to like generalist football podcasts and stuff, and after Man United, they're like, "Yeah, Arsenal are going to win the league." Uh, I think Jonathan Liu put it in his piece in that match. He said Arsenal are going to win the league, and someone should commit that to print. Yeah. And that's nice to read, but it's also really scary. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, it's it, yeah, that that for me is the challenge: is continuing to harness that momentum, mm. but particularly when it cut you. I think we have City away in like late April. Like if we go into, and there's quite a few games in May, so that's not like the penultimate game or anything. We go into that game and it's like, I don't know, four points clear or something. That's going to be, because they're going to be like, we have to win, otherwise it's over. You know, like that's coming. That's all coming around the corner. It's a hell of a run that actually. It's Man City away, Chelsea at home, Newcastle Newcastle. away, then Brighton at home. The Moises Caicedo derby. Yeah, for, Forest away as well. They might yeah. be, you know, that's another reason games are different in April and May because you play. We play Nottingham Forest at home in October. You smash them five nil. Mm. You play them in May. They need something um, mm. potentially. So yeah, yeah. that's why the temperature of those games can change. It's not just about you. It's about what other teams need. So that that's all coming, and it's all really scary. But that that's the biggest challenge for me. Mm. All part of the fun. All part of the fun. We will, we will uh, preview the Everton game over on Patreon for you a bit later today. Friday, myself and Lewis will do our Premier League preview podcast, as we always do. Tim, let's turn our attention to uh, Arsenal women, because mm-hmm. there were um, transfer deadline day shenanigans going on there as well. Arsenal were in need. <laughs> Arsenal were in need of a, a striker. Before we talk about what didn't happen in this window, let's talk about what did and what sort of state the squad is in so let me put the same question to you about the women's team uh, that i did uh, for the men's team how do you feel about the squad going into the second half of of the season unfortunately slightly worse um so essentially what has happened is just to summarize the activity jordan nobbs and manu iwabuchi have left both attacking midfielders both players that the manager didn't really trust that much and didn't want to use. And he's brought in two other attacking midfielders called Catherine Cool. She's 19, really shit hot young talent. And a Dutch player called Victoria Pelova, who's number 10. So like those are two like for like replacements. Something really interesting has happened at goalkeeper because Arsenal have had a solid number one goalkeeper in Man- um, Manuela Zinsberger for the last few years. 
Her contract's up at the end of the season, and I think she might be going. So Arsenal have brought a Canadian goalkeeper in uh, who's 29 called Sabrina D'Angelo, and she she hasn't come to sit on the bench, basically. Mm. So this feels a bit Leno Ramsdale um, to me. It might not happen that quickly, but I think that's that's what's in the post. But uh, unfortunately, all of the activity that happened in January was basically going to happen anyway, I think. I think the Victoria Pulova signing was taken forward from the summer, because she, I know Arsenal spoke to her last summer, but she was still studying in Amsterdam. She wanted, she's like, Victoria Pelova has an, a degree in applied mathematics and she's a junior chess champion in the Netherlands. So, you know, um, just your average footballer. Sure, of course. And, uh, but she wanted to finish her degree. So she signed a one year deal with Ajax. And I think that basically she was going to come to Arsenal in the summer, but it was brought forward, I think. And the reason it was brought forward is because there's no dressing it up. Vivian Miedema and Beth Mead, who um, directly contributed to 66% of Arsenal's league goals last season, both did their ACLs within a fortnight of each other. And that's wretched luck. That is absolutely wretched luck. That would be the equivalent, really... Don't say it out loud. Whatever you're going to say, don't say it out loud. (laughs) I'm not superstitious, but just don't say it out loud. (laughs) Within like three weeks of each other, they both do their ACLs. And that completely like blows open what Arsenal need to do. Yeah, you can't legislate for that, can you? You know, No, no. But so essentially what happened was uh, they signed like these three players. They also recalled they had a young Brazilian winger called uh, Gio, uh, who was on loan with Everton. They recalled her largely because of the injury situation, because they were like, right, we're down to attackers. Mm. Sorry, you're coming back. Um, well, not sorry you're coming back, but welcome back. You're coming back. Yes. And she's, she's, but she's 19. She's incredibly talented, but again, like raw at this stage. So what they've basically been trying to do since Christmas is is bringing a striker. And the manager, Jonas Eideval, has been completely unrepentant about this. I asked him about it at the beginning of January. He said, quote, I would be very disappointed if we don't get a prolific goal scorer because all the players Arsenal have brought in are like creative players. Mm. But at this stage of their career, they're not regular goal scorers. And then I asked him on Sunday, two days before the deadline, and he said, this is a big moment in our season to get this done. So there was desperation around now, first, they went for a Brazilian forward called Debinha. She would have been br- a brilliant signing. She is in the Mead and Mead class. She's 31, but she's world class. That would have been tick, problem solved. Job done, yeah. But she decided to stay in the US where she's been playing for the last few years. So that was a blow. So then Arsenal pivoted to um, a striker called Chloe Lacasse, who plays for Benfica and the Portuguese league. You know, in women's football, it's not a very strong league. But she scored five goals in the Champions League group stage, playing for the weakest team. She scored against Barca. She scored against Bayern. Um, so she's 29, some pedigree there. That would have been short-term kind of thing, but that's let's bring in a 29-year-old striker. And the, the club were reasonably confident of getting that done. But it didn't get done. And it dragged on and on and on. And then it got to a couple of days before the deadline. And because she's Canadian as well, the amount of paperwork that would have been required, mm. they had to just be like, this deal's dead. So what they do a day before the deadline is they make um, they make a world record bid for Alessia Russo from Manchester United. She's 23. She's in England. She's, she's England's number nine now that Ellen White's retired. Now, her contract is up in the summer with Manchester United. She's stalling on a new deal. She's turned down new deals. No one really knows whether that's because she's waiting to see what how United end the season, whether they're in the Champions League, whether they could win the league, they're top at the moment, or whether she's just going to go in the summer. Arsenal, very interested, always have been very interested in doing that deal in the summer. There's a reason they didn't try and do it on January the 1st, um, because they didn't because th- it was difficult. Mm. basically. So really, out of desperation, Arsenal make a world record bid for Alessio Russo. And, you know, like the the world record transfer fee in women's football is £400,000 at the moment. Arsenal bid 500000 And like women's transfer, uh, like fees are in a really weird place where that's the record, like 500,000. That's miles above the, that's 20% over the current record. So that's Mm. how serious 
Arsenal were. But at the same time, like 500,000 didn't really mean anything to Manchester United. The club, it does the women's side, but not the whole club. Sure. So yeah. essentially, it let, let me like make a parallel to the men's side. Imagine that we don't get Caicedo, we can't get Jorginho either. And on deadline day, we just say, let's put £120 million in front of West Ham and see if they'll give us Declan Rice. It's a bit like that. It's a deal they wanted to do in the summer. And out of desperation, they tried to do it on deadline day. They couldn't do it. They also had another deal on the back burner with a Norwegian striker called Signe Brun, who is like not quite in Russo's class. She's like good, solid pro. But unfortunately, she wanted to come. They agreed personal terms with her, but Leon didn't want to let her go. That would have been a doable deal a couple of weeks ago. The reason Leon didn't want to let go is because they it didn't was the have last time. day yeah. and they were like, we can't get anyone else and their main striker's injured. So they didn't want to let her go. So essentially what happened was that Arsenal got very desperate in the last 24 to 48 hours of the window. Unfortunately, there's some reports that have emerged as well that in their desperation, Arsenal tried to throw in some of their current forwards, um, not least Stina Blackstinius, who is the only out-and-out number nine in the squad. And there are report. I, I, uh, this information didn't come to me. I'd say there's a reason it didn't come to me because I think it suits Manchester United for this information to be out there. Um, but apparently Arsenal tried to offer Stina Blackstenius as part of the deal. So, you know, if that's true, it's even worse because not only did they not get the player, but mm. they tried to put tried to get rid of their current number nine who they've now got to rely on and in the second half of Arsenal season they got Man City in the League Cup they got Chelsea in the FA Cup they got Chelsea away in the league they've got City twice in the league and they got Manchester United away and they got Champions League quarterfinals like the the toughness of their schedule in the second half of the season is mad which is why they were so desperate so to come away empty-handed is is not fantastic, right? To so, be honest. so someone's going to have to step up and um, you know fill yep. that goal scoring gap because you know just looking at the league table, Arsenal have twenty six goals after ten games this mm-hmm. season. You know, which you know doesn't sound bad. It's two point six goals again. Largely been with Mead and Mead. Yeah, but finished last season with sixty five goals from twenty two games. So there's a huge gap there to to try and to try and make up. I mean, what? What can the the manager do to try and offset the the absence of two unbelievably talented players? It's it's you know it's a really tough thing for him to do, um, but he's going to have to try and come up with some plan. Yep. I mean, yeah. best of luck to him. I I say because <laughs> yeah. you know it's really yeah, difficult. Uh, you know, I don't want to do the example because we all know what it would be like. <laughs> take the two best players out of, you know, Man City or take the two best players out of Liverpool or the two best players out of, of, of yep. Chelsea. Well, we don't know who the two best players in Chelsea are because they've got about 600 if, players. If Chelsea women lost Sam Kerr and, I don't know, Guru Wrighton or someone like if they both did their ACS, yeah. they wouldn't win the league either. Yeah. So it, it's weird. It's been a weird window because long-term, Arsenal brought some really good young players in and, and they'll get Mead and Meadema back, but those two in injuries just colour it. Yeah. In, in in answer to how do they do this, I mean, they've actually got a really good defensive structure anyway, so they don't concede many goals. So they do have that going for them. Mm. The, the biggest, I mean, first of all, Stina Blackstenius, she just, she can do better than she's been doing, in my view. Um, I think she's better than the form she showed this season. So she's going to have to come close to her form. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit. I think the regularity, because the other big thing is Mead and Miedema have been part of that forward line for five years. And and so it's not just that they're both really good and they score and make loads of goals, but like Arsenal without those two players just looks weird because they've been there for yeah, so yeah, long. Yeah. So it's going to have to be a new chemistry in the attack. The, the big shining light is uh, Frieda Mornham, who's a Norwegian midfielder who's immensely talented, struggled for game time last season, but this the, the medium injury has cleared a space for her and she's really, really good and she's really taking that chance and she's the leading scorer at the moment on 10 goals. Um, she's very different to Viv. She's a powerhouse of a player, um, really difficult to get off the ball, has a hell of a shot on her, 
and she's got 10 goals this season because she's getting games now and she is like tipping in. She's 22, I think now. Mm. She's going into world-class category. So it, in a not in a weird way, actually replacing Miedema has been a bit easier than replacing Beth Mead because there's a player there in Frieda Mornham who is waiting to break out and she's breaking out now. And I think we'll see a big second half of the season from her. It's the Mead side because she plays on the right of the attack. And that's the bit that's missing. Like Stina, Bla- you quoted the goal scored last season, like Stina Blackstinius was playing in that team. The thing with Stina is actually her role is much more about creating space for others as mm. well. And she does that quite well. So like you can attribute some of Mead and Meadham as goal scoring to the space and, and everything that Blackstinius creates. But like, she's going to have to do a bit more than that at the moment. And like even Caitlin Ford, who's, really really good important player for Arsenal she's only got one league goal this season she does a whole load of other really really important stuff but like she's gonna have to stick the ball in the net that that's that's the case for a couple of them who do important stuff but they're gonna have to stick the ball in the net I think Frieda Mornham is going to do that Mm. I think we'll see like a big goal scoring season from her and look, Arsenal bought um, a Swedish uh, attacker called Lena Hertig over the summer. She was injured for a lot of the first half of the season. So we haven't seen much of her at the moment, but she's probably going to be playing Beth Mead's position. Again, very different player, mm. but we don't really know what we've got there yet. And... Uh, I think we're going to have to hope we've got something really, really good, quite frankly. All right. Well, look, let's see what happens. A socialist approach to goal scoring for the Arsenal (laughs) women between now and the end of the season uh, would be very nice. Okay. well, look, we'll keep an eye on both those uh, both those sides. Um, Still a lot to play for, for the men and for the women. Tim, as always, thanks a million. Great to talk to you. My pleasure as always. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Thanks very much indeed to Tim. You can find him on Twitter. He is at Stillmanator. At Stillmanator. You can read his column on arsblog.com every week. And of course, his coverage of the Arsenal women team is unparalleled over on Arsblog News. So that's just about that for this week's show. Thanks again for being here. As I mentioned, we will be previewing the Everton game. The Sean Dyshification of Everton is what we're going to have to face on Saturday morning. New manager bounce and all the rest of it. We'll do that on Patreon. Uh, We'll have that for you Friday afternoon. If you want to sign up, you can get access to that and all the other stuff we do on Patreon. We had loads for you this week. We had a new signing podcast. We had a statements podcast. We have our roundup of the month, the poorly drawn month in which I team up with poorly drawn Arsenal to recap the events of January 2023. We do that every month and loads, loads more there as well. You can sign up. It's patreon.com forward slash arseblog. James and I will be here on Monday with an Arsecast Extra. Please do join us for that. In the meantime, have yourselves a great weekend. Here's to three points for the Gunners. Talk to you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye.
It was a cold, wet January day. The kind of day that'd make a plumber beat a scorpion to death when the guy walked into my office. He was large, dressed in blue, the kind of hair that told you went to Barber's Apprentice School to get it cut. What do you want, mister? I said, I'm busy. I need your help, he said. Oh yeah, I said, with what? I got this soccer team, he said. Oh yeah, I said, well why don't you go take some free kicks or something and leave me be. They got rules, he said, about how much money you can spend. I need you to dig through the paperwork and find me a loophole. Look, mister, I said, those rules sound like common sense. Maybe they're trying to do you a favor. But I want to buy as many players as I want, he said. Oh, I said, well, why didn't you say so? I got the perfect solution. Oh, yeah, he said, what's that? Well, I said, number one, get the fuck out of my office. What's number two, he said. Mister, I said, there is no number two. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.